Let's pray together. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we recognize that you are the same God that you were in the first century. And you helped Ananias and Sapphira accountable for really bearing false witness before you. Teach us this morning to become people of the truth. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. <clears throat> the modern science of genetics got its start in about 1850s and 1860s under the leadership of Gregor Mendel. Some maybe recognize his name. Uh, but in the 1980s, historians went back and began to look at his research. And they were quite surprised when they looked at his research because they found that much of what he reported was simply falsified. In the 1980s, there was a brilliant young medical researcher at Howard University, and people wondered how it could be possible that he would publish so many research papers, 100 research papers in two years' time. Shocking. And then someone found out that he was simply forging his data the scientific research that he was reporting had never been done. In this way, some 30 years ago, there was a shock that went across the English-speaking academic world. People questioned, is it possible that modern science is mostly based on deception? Now, this feeling of shock that I shared almost 40 years ago when I was a university student has now turned to numbness. Now we know that fraud of this sort is widespread in academic circles. Much of the research on which modern society is supposedly based has never been done. And this not only damages the reputation of science and healthcare, as it, it looks to me that Western civilization, the culture that many of us call home, was largely shaped by four key convictions. These four convictions arose, as I understand it, Beginning in Athens, in the account of, that we just read a few moments ago from the Apostle Paul visiting Athens, when he began a process that we read this morning, it not only led to some people becoming Christians and becoming gathered, getting gathered together into a church, there was also widespread impact on the society and the way that people thought that was outside the circles of the church. And there were at least there were four major themes in that that we see starting in this time in Athens. First was that people started to question, is there such a thing as truth? When we look at the religions of the ancient Middle East and Roman world, there was no interest in truth. You recall that Pontius Pilate asked Jesus, what is truth? He was one of the first people to ask that question, and the question arose in his mind after he talked with Jesus. Is this true? And the same thing happened across the Roman world as the first missionaries went out. People started to ask, is there such a thing as truth and what is it? And even among people who were not Christians, they began a quest for truth. But there was a second principle that came with it. And this was the respect for human dignity. You see, until that time, there were two ways people adopted a religion. Frequently, it was at the tip of a sword. The emperor said, this is what your religion is and you will do X, Y, Z or lose your head. But other times, people simply didn't care. Many people didn't care what they believed or who believed what because they really weren't very interested in it. When Christians 
like Paul and others, said, uh, we think you should believe this, and tried to convince them, there was a, a, inherent in the process, there was a new respect for human dignity that was almost unknown in the ancient world, that someone would take a concern in what I believe and try to convince me in normal words what they think I should believe, that expresses a tremendous respect for my dignity as a person. Again, that was something that was radically new in their world. At the same time, as we heard, there was an, the concern for justice was raised far, far higher. Now, some of the lawyers in the ancient word, world talked about justice, but the vast majority of the population were slaves, and justice didn't apply to slaves. So suddenly you have someone talking about justice on the ultimate level, that someone would judge people. And these, four, these three principles then had a four, led to a fourth, and that set, was it set off progress in the ancient world. If we look at the ancient history, things didn't change very much from one century to the next. But when Christianity comes on the scene, everything starts to change, including the technology. So everything got a new impulse. New things happened across all the sectors of society. And these four principles are, I believe, the basis of what we call home, Western civilization. They're under threat by fraud of the sort I just talked about. Bearing false witness is serious. In 2002, the Barna Research Group uh, did an interesting research project. The question was, is there a much higher respect for truth among Christians than among non-Christians? It's a relatively small study, so the results are not so important. But they interviewed quite a few people in the United States some who claimed to be Christians, others who clearly said they were not Christians. Among those who did not claim to be Christians, 15% said they believed in truth. Among those who were Christians, 32% said they believed in truth. And specifically, this was related to moral truth. Among Christians, two out of three did not, said they did not believe in moral truth. Now, look around the room a minute. Figure that... Do you think that two out of three people in this room here do not believe that murder and rape are wrong? Now, I really don't think so. That's not my experience. I think this research was deeply flawed. Uh, and when I was a philosophy professor in secular universities, I had countless opportunities to talk, to talk with students. I wish I'd taken notes at the time, but now all I have is vivid memories from a decade ago. But I found that my students generally made four assumptions about right and wrong. One, almost all my students, even though they might say they don't believe in moral truth, yet they did, they'd say it's wrong to kill another person, with just a couple of exceptions, perhaps self-defense or if you're a soldier in a time of war or something. Two, they almost all thought it was wrong to have sex with another person without consent. Three, they thought it was wrong to steal unless you needed to steal in order to stay alive steal food or something. And fourth, they all thought it was wrong to lie unless the person to whom you are lying happens to be a government official. <laughs> uh, now, I, uh, as I listened to my students over a decade, I um, started to regard these four principles as guardians of our humanity that are written by God in the human heart and the human mind. Even among students who said they didn't believe in God, yet they seemed to believe more or less these principles. 
They had no idea where the principles came from. And so I would sometimes talk about them a little bit and ask, them, well, how do you know that? And get this uneasy yeah, reaction. They don't know where it comes from, yet they, know, they think it's true. They're, and I noticed they're very similar to Commandments 6, 7, 8, and 9, of which we're studying number 9. Now, this means it's quite rare that people do not know that something is wrong. When people do something that's wrong, they usually know that it's wrong. Perhaps they even do what is wrong because they want to do something wrong. Uh, and um, that's true with this commandment, too. God is concerned about our truthfulness. Uh, he's very concerned about our truthfulness. Uh, I think God wants us to be careful with our speech that we say what is true. Now, it's worth noting that this commandment is for, uses terminology similar to that of a courtroom. False witness is the kind of term you'd use about court, in a court. It's a deceiving testimony. It's because that would usually be used against someone else. The, the concern here isn't just uh, trivial mistaken information, such as what color tie did I wear today. The concern here is to deceive someone in order to hurt someone else, or perhaps to help yourself, but it's intentional deceit for a purpose. And this concern is widespread throughout the Bible. We see it in both the Old and New Testaments. In Deuteronomy 19, we find a law that says it's, it's if you try to harm someone in court by saying something false about them, that penalty, that punishment, falls on you instead. Uh, in the New Testament, the people of God are no longer a nation-state, so there's no longer the same church-state relationship, but that's why we read the story of Ananias and Sapphira. God was quite interested in what they said. Uh, very interesting. Now, fortunately, God does not do that sort of thing very often, as far as we know, but we should be very careful with our words. Uh, I think it's because of the story of Ananias and Sapphira that Christians today tend to be very discreet when they talk about their own charitable giving. Uh, some people are able to be quite generous, and almost no one knows about it. To get the ultimate perspective on this, we really need to go back to the Garden of Eden. The first false news, as many people have said, was what the, the serpent said to Adam and Eve in the Garden. Uh, he, made a false promise to them that they could be like gods. Instead, something else happened. Instead of just being like, instead of being like God, they had the experience, the encounter with both good and evil. Before the fall into sin, all that they experienced was good. But afterwards, they experienced both good and evil, much as we do today. But the response of God in the Garden of Eden shows us where he is headed in this, in dealing with deceitfulness. You see, God said to Adam and Eve, the seed of the woman will crush the head of the serpent. God was saying not only is, is it important that we tell the truth, but he said there's the real principle that overcomes falsehood and deceit is the gospel. The alternative to false news is not only true news, the alternative to false news is the good news that was promised here in rather vague terms, but that is the alternative, that someday the seed of Eve, the son of Mary, Jesus of Nazareth, would crush the head of the serpent by dying and rising again, paying for our sins. That's the real alternative to false news. It's good news. 
Now, to think about this a little further, I, I've discovered five principles in the Bible that I think help us understand this uh, concern of God. The first of these is that God is the source and standard of truth. You see this frequently in the Psalms, so I'll just read a verse from Psalm 31. Into your hands I commit my spirit. Redeem me, O Lord, God of truth. Now, when the Old Testament describes God as truthful, the terminology that's used is the same terminology that's used to describe God as faithful in the sense of keeping his promises. You see, in the Bible, truth is not an impersonal concern. It's personal because truth always has to do with God, with really agreeing with God's opinion on a subject. We have to be truthful with God and truthful with each other because what we say affects people so much. That's why the Bible describes God's word as true. In John 17, when Jesus is praying his famous prayer, he says, your word is truth. God's word is truth. But another principle we see related to this in the Bible is that God wants us to be truthful people, our whole theme today. When we speak, we have to be truthful. You can say that as many times as you want. You see, truth ultimately has to do with agreeing with God on a subject. I'll give you an example. Uh, and this is one I often used in the university classroom. I would ask my students, do you know what 2 plus 2 is? I'll say plus 4. And then I would ask the next question, well, do you think 2 plus 2 will still be 4 tomorrow? And they said, of course. And then I said, how do you know that? How do you know 2 plus 2 will not be 5 tomorrow? Of course, there was usually a puzzled silence. Of course, but I'm thinking at that time, because 2 plus 2 equaling 4 is an eternal principle in the mind of God. Truth exists in the mind of God. And somehow, people know that. If we can't answer why will 2 plus 2 equal 4 tomorrow, it shows that in some sense we're a little bit alienated from God yet. Worthy of thought. Now, the second principle we should notice in the Scriptures is that words are powerful, powerful. In Proverbs 18.21, we read, the tongue has the power of life and death, and those who love it will eat its fruit. Our words cause things to happen, either good things or bad things. Our words can destroy or they can promote life. We can create or annihilate with the use of words. They're the great, our words are the greatest source of power that we have. They're part of being in the image of God. You see, God created the universe by speaking. He said, let there be light, and there was light. But God also redeemed the universe by speaking. Jesus is the word of God. The word of God become flesh. So God creates and redeems by means of speaking. That's why it's important that our words are true. They're a reflection of what we think God is like. A third principle in the scriptures is that lying easily makes us into the enemies of God. You know, I've mentioned the story of the serpent in Genesis 3. The serpent, Satan, lies because that's his nature. And when we tell a lie that's intended to hurt someone, we're imitating the serpent. It's like we're in the image of the serpent instead of in the image of God. Careful, now, there's some related matters that are worth mentioning in terms of what we tell ourselves. One of these is that 
I'm convinced that unbelief involves lying to ourselves. In Romans chapter 1, verses 18 and 19, Paul mentions, says, quote, The godlessness and wickedness of men who suppress the truth by their wickedness, since what may be known about God is plain to them, because God has made it plain to them. Paul's saying God is making himself known through the through the creation of the universe. So in the most important sense, everyone knows God already. But of course, some people claim to be atheists, but aren't really. They really know God in an important sense. They're not only lying to God, they're lying to themselves. This kind of self-deception runs deep in human nature. In Jeremiah 17, we read, the heart is deceitful above all things and beyond cure. Who can understand it? So we should ask ourselves, uh, how often do we lie to ourselves? How, do we, how often do we say, well, I'm not really lazy, I'm not really deceptive, I'm not really so addicted to this or that? Or also say, it's, it's okay, uh, no, no, no. A friend of mine wrote a book on ethics entitled when no one is looking. Good title. So watch ourselves in terms of what we tell ourselves. Are we telling ourselves the truth or are we telling ourselves a lie? Now the fourth principle I believe is that we must learn to treasure the truth, to treasure the truth. That has to be an attitude of our hearts that we really want it. Uh, recall perhaps that Jesus told a story about a man who found a treasure in a field and then he went and sold everything that he had so he could buy the field where he knew the treasure was buried. That's the way we should be. Uh, it'll take some effort. We have to be constantly learning. And this means we have to stand up for the truth from time to time. Jesus said, if anyone is ashamed of me and my words, the Son of Man will be ashamed of him. Now, there will be in our lives, I think for all of us, special moments when we recognize that we need at that moment to stand up for someone or some principle that we know is true. Now, there's a traditional word that Christians have used for that special moment when it occurs. It's called the status confessionis in Latin, the situation of needing to make a confession in modern terms. And that will happen to you sometime. In some situation, suddenly, you know, I have to say something. And probably, I think, at that moment, the Holy Spirit will give you the words that you need. But be ready to do that when it happens. Treasure the truth and be willing to speak the truth when the time comes. Of course, that means being teachable. In Proverbs 13, we see, Wisdom is found in those who take advice. The stupidest person is the one who stops learning. We have to be learning. Let's think about the family for a minute. What creates healthy family life? What destroys family life? Family is all about words, what we say to each other. Uh, perhaps you heard children threatened with words that you know the parents will never follow. They say, if you do such and such, we will do. But, of course, it's rare that happens. Or we make promises to each other that aren't possible to keep. Um, 
While I was writing a sermon on this topic 28 years ago, Leslie and I walked in, and my wife, uh, walked into our son's room. He was a little boy at that time. And uh, I saw that the heater in his bedroom was dusty. And I said something like, uh, we should clean his heater. Leslie called me on. She said, did you mean you should clean the heater or I should clean the heater? <laughs> uh, you see, I was, I was trying to deceive her trying to say we should clean the heater when I meant you should clean the heater, or I should have just gone and cleaned it. Now, I use that illustration because it's no longer painful, but it illustrates, <laughs> it illustrates what we do to each other in the family. We can build each other up or we can destroy each other by our words. Uh, maybe you've heard a parent say, the decision is yours. When, of course, the parent wants to manipulate the child and doesn't mean for a second that the child may make that decision. When I was a young pastor, I think this happened 36 years ago, there was a young couple in our church who came in all excited. They announced that they had just been engaged. Wow, are they happy. And then I started talking with them, and I asked, well, when are you going to get married? And they set a time, and if I recall, it was 18 to 24 months in the future. And I said, oh, that's, that's too long to be engaged, not thinking about my words. Two or three weeks later, they walked into church holding hands. They were married. Because of my off-the-cuff comment, thoughtless comment, they eloped. Uh, I think their marriage worked out okay. I don't think it did them permanent damage. <laughs> but uh, for me, it was striking how... Our words influence people. Um, so be careful. Final principle is that we must learn to show love in words. We can use words to destroy, or we can use words to build people up. Probably everyone here needs a word of encouragement. Everyone here needs uh, to hear that someone is interested in them, that someone thought about them this week. We can use our words to build people up. Um, so maybe talk to someone you haven't talked to today. Uh, build them up in a way to do that. And related to that, we have to be careful to interpret the words of other people in a favorable way. Whenever someone talks to us, we spin it in our heads, for good or for evil. Sometimes it's an innocent comment that someone makes, and we think, oh, are they angry at us, or do they think poorly of me? Be careful how you interpret the words of other people, because th their words might be well-meant, and you took them for evil. Words are the most powerful thing we have. Now, I suggested a little while ago that uh, the process of developing Western civilization that I like to call home started when the Apostle Paul and others first tried to convince people that the Christian faith is true. That was a complicated process, and uh, it didn't always go so well at first, primarily because there were several terrible misunderstandings of the Christian faith that damaged the lives of many people. And those misunderstandings of the Christian faith are still around. They still damage the lives of many people. I uh, wrote a book about it several years ago. If you want to read it, you can find it probably. But what the church did in response was to articulate more carefully the core truths of the Christian faith. And they did so, they, they obviously knew 
the Apostles' Creed and built on it, but they wanted to add a lot of detail. And it made a decisive change in addition to that. The Apostles' Creed begins, I believe. The Nicene Creed begins, we believe. So what I would like us to do now is to conclude my sermon by reciting the Nicene Creed. It should come on the overhead here in a moment. Uh, it's a lot longer than the Apostles' Creed, so uh, it's not quite as easy to memorize. I have not memorized it, though I probably should. But if you would, if you're able to stand, would you stand and we'll recite the Nicene Creed. Together. We believe in one God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and of all things visible and invisible, and in one Lord Jesus Christ, the only Son of God, begotten from the Father before all ages, God from God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten, not made, of the same essence as the Father. Through him all things were made. For us and for our salvation, he came down from heaven. He became incarnate by the Holy Spirit and the Virgin Mary and was made human. He was crucified for us under Pontius Pilate. He suffered and was buried. The third day he rose again, according to the scriptures. He ascended to heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. He will come again with glory to judge the living and the dead. His kingdom will never end. And we believe in the Holy Spirit, the Lord, the giver of life. He proceeds from the Father and the Son, and with the Father and the Son is worshiped and glorified. He spoke through the prophets. We believe in one holy Catholic and apostolic church. We affirm one baptism for the forgiveness of sins. We look forward to the resurrection of the dead and to the life in the world to come. Amen. You may be seated. Thank you. <clears throat> 